Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Victoria Ska and Reggae Festival is the longest-running ska festival in all of North America. It started in the year 2000 in the city of Victoria, which is in Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. The festival has gone on every year since, with the obvious exception of 2020. It came back in 2021 with limited seating and being mostly a streaming event. But now in 2022, the festival is back in full force and will take place from June 22nd Till June 26. We spoke with the festival's organizer, Dane Roberts, to learn about the festival's history and what the ska scene has been like on Little Vancouver Island. If you want to grab tickets, head over to victoriascafest.ca. Aaron, how do you feel about festivals? Not a big fan of festivals generally, but there are exceptions. Same. I'm also not a big festival guy. However, this festival, I think I would go to. Yeah, me too. Supernova is another one I have not gone to, but I would like to go to. Also Fest. Although Fest doesn't really feel like a, a quote-unquote festival. Yeah, it's more like a bunch of like shows happening. Right, which is kind of, I mean, that seemed kind of the vibe of, of the Victoria Scott Festival. Definitely, yeah. I like that the Victoria Scott Festival was um, that they're putting on like a variety of acts and some of them are like what you'd expect and some of them are quite different, but they all, they all fit within ska and reggae or they're closely associated enough that you can understand why they're booked. Yeah. I think that's partially like one of my favorite things about ska in general. It doesn't have to be one specific set of things. We can have all these different types of music that all kind of fit under the umbrella of ska. Mm -hmm. I feel like it strengthens the genre as a whole. I mean, it's like we, you go into a record store, the record stores that still exist and they have a rock section, but none of those bands sound the same. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're saying is that the record store should have a ska section. And it should be massive, massive. <laughs> so, you know, Victoria, Victoria can is not that far from us. So maybe, maybe next year, maybe we'll make it next year. Anybody want to sponsor us to go up there? Yes. Hit us up. So to totally unrelated to this interview, I actually went to Victoria for the first time, like just a couple of weeks ago. My wife and I just like, I don't know, we live in California, so we just wanted to go. Nice. To see, I've never seen Victoria. And like part of the, part of the, what we wanted to do is we wanted to hop on a ferry from Washington and spend the day in Victoria on, on feet with no cars and just walk around the marina. Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful place. I'm curious now that now that I've seen Victoria, how um, where where is it at? I guess that's what I'm asking. Right, right. Well, um, when I first when I first started it, um, I was in university, and um, I was like probably my first or second year of university, and uh, you know I always wanted to get into. Like event planning and you know bringing people together that was always my passion and um, I decided to pursue a degree 
um, at UVic in leisure administration. And my mom and family were always, I was always had the influence of Caribbean music growing up. And, um, you know, so basically my friend, the thing is I always listened to reggae music before that, but my friend introduced me to third wave ska music when I was about 18 or 19 years old. And it was when the craze in the States hit Victoria, the third wave craze. And we just went up, we just rode a wave of it, you know, like I just, it was like the, one of the best things that ever happened to me, um, learning about the ska. And I didn't know, like, you know, the type of the third wave style of it. I mean, I, I didn't even make connection that it had anything to do with reggae until I started to <laughs> ask myself why um, I liked it so much. And then I looked up all the research about it and I'm like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so when you learned about ska, 90s ska, mm-hmm. what were the bands that you really liked a lot? Oh, I liked, um, let's see, well, Easy Big Fella, Hepcat, um, what else? I liked uh, the Toasters. I liked, um, and I mean, I liked the two-tone bands, like the Specials. Um, I remember Dr. Ringding um, and all of those kinds of bands. Let's Go Bowling. Uh, those are all those kinds of bands, you know, uh, Less Than Jake, um, Real Big Fish. Those were the bands that I was introduced to in terms of third wave ska. Yeah. And the slackers as well. Um, and I, I basically, um, yeah, like I, I, I just took to it so much. And we had a band here called the Bombasts, um, that they were a third wave ska band that formed based on the excitement of the third wave movement. And they were, they were packing clubs left, right and center. And I just got in there as a promoter and started, I was, became the ska dude. And just like started promoting ska ska bands, but before that, I'd been doing, um, you know, or as I came up, I I, I did also um, like reggae and I steel drum and hip hop. So I just like producing music, but ska was really the number one um, kind of music. What would uh, describe the bombasts to us? What did they sound like? They, they were like they were a nine-piece band, and this like really fast third-wave ska, and they were more kind of like third-wave jazzy. But mm. there was another band before them called Pressure Cooker, who is a punk um, a punk ska band, and uh, they they had like a lot of elements of third wave, but very influenced by punk music. And we used to go to all ages shows at different halls around town. And that was kind of like how that also was a foundation for enjoying and being part of the scene because that's where the bombast started to do the same thing. Around the time that the bombasts um, started, Pressure Cooker had just retired and they had another band called The Defectors. So we made the first show I ever did where I put my money on the line was August 28th of 1997. And it was The Bombass, Run Chico Run, and The Defectors, which was a smaller um, a smaller ensemble with members from Pressure Cooker. And uh, it went well. And then after that, the scene started to grow and grow from there because we were kind of like right at the height where we started to party and, you know, <laughs> have like regular girlfriends and, you know, just having this thriving scene. The, you know, we we're creating a scene, you know, packing clubs with this music. And um, I actually, um, the first time that um, we had the uh, Victoria Ska Festival was in the summer of 2000 and uh, it was with Pressure Cooker. And that was huge because they were the band that everybody loved so much that never thought would ever get back together. And I convinced them. They'd said first, Daryl told me that he was going to play the show for 10,000 Canadian dollars. 
And I said, we, we have to do a little bit of negotiation. This is our first festival. He said, all right, well, you'll have to, you'll do it for a, a flight for Allison to come back from, or, or either Allison or Paul Shrimpton, who was in Toronto at the time, and a deli tray, because we really like those. So they played it for that. And the Bombast played on the afternoon show. We booked um, King Django and, um, oh, what was it? That other band, they're from New York, the Scofflaws. Scofflaws. Yeah. And they were on tour together. And then Chris Murray came up. So we had those four bands playing in the, in the, at night and then the, all the local ska bands playing in the day. And the show sold out. And it was the first, it was my final work term for my degree, um, which was in a BA in education, majoring in leisure service administration. And that was my final work term that I needed to get my degree. So that's how the festival started. And it was that pressure cooker, the band that I looked up to when I was in high school and went to these like crazy all ages ska punk shows was the band that gave it that start, good start it needed out of the gate. And here we are 23 years later. They were like the band in the mid nineties, right? Uh, for in Victoria. Yes. Yes. That was, that was active. Um, did they get out of Victoria or was it pretty much a local thing? No, it was pretty much a local thing. I mean, I think that they played, they may have done some touring around BC and stuff like that, but, um, Pretty much, pretty local for the most part that I remember. Um, I know that they were friends with Chris Murray from King Apparatus because he played mm-hmm. in that band before, and I had attended some of their shows before I'd put on the Scott and Reggae Fest. And um, they were known with a few people um, in the Canadian ska scene, the Kingpins, and they they were like big brother, older than me, like pressure cooker, like. Probably when I was 16, they were 20 or something like that. Yeah. It seemed a lot older back then. They were like, when you're 16 and they're 20, and then you realize that you're, you're, you're pretty much in the same um, age bracket, but you know, just a little bit younger. Yeah. Um, so before you were booking, what kind of bands would tour through Victoria? Would you get many touring acts? Yeah, actually, there was quite a few. There was a, um, a venue called Harpos. Um, which was run by Gary Van Buskirk and Marcus Pollard, um, T-Bone Productions. And they brought many great acts to Harpo's. Big bands too, like Ray, like um, maybe like, maybe not Ray Charles, but, um, oh, what's it? Um, Maceo Parker. They would bring Culture, the reggae band Culture. They would bring like a lot of, great acts would come through that bar. It was just the place to be. And of course it was probably packed to the brim. Um, probably like it probably put like 500 people in there. And back in the day that was just, you know, par for the course. And I remember we booked um, easy big fella one time. Um, and that was the first time that the biggest ska show I ever did. And it was at a venue called the limit which was a venue that was used after Harpos um, became more of a club venue. And uh, they, yeah, we had like 550 people where the, the, the legal capacity was more like 290 or something. You couldn't even, you couldn't even uh, move your arm anywhere in the whole bar. Um, and I just remember we charged six dollars in advance and seven dollars at the door. <laughs> Those were the days. Yeah, yeah. And we had, and all the posters were painted; they were hand drawn, right, oh, or wow. or done with cut and paste. You know, with like you cut out characters, paste them, and photocopy it. Can you remember what the, what the art looked like? Oh yeah, yeah. I could probably I could probably find some somewhere. Um, I I kept some of that artwork and uh, yeah, it was just like I'd get people to hand draw stuff. Um, and you know, if and it, when we got if you used a computer when we set, when we did the ska and reggae festival, we had the guy. His name was Martin Wales, and he he um, had a comic book called Kindernot. And it was uh, 
a comic book that was the mods against the Nazis. It was this ongoing saga. And he was one of the best illustrators in Canada. His name is Martin Wales. And he did the poster for us and he hand drew it, but he was also good with the computer. So having a poster like that in, in the two, in 2000 was like, you know, really big deal. Yeah. So you, um, before you were booking shows, you were um, co-hosting a radio show called Skanksters Paradise? That's right. Yeah. My friend Matthew Bishop, the one that introduced me to Third Wave Ska, um, he was the one that introduced me to um, the radio at, at CFUV 101.9 FM, which is a um, community campus radio station that still operates at the University of Victoria. And it's all volunteer run. And we used to party and he had a, um, the, his radio shows at six in the morning. So we would just party all night and then go and do the show and then go back to his house and pass out because his show, his <laughs> house was really close to the radio station. And, uh, oh man, those were some of the best days of my life. And, um, yeah, it was, he played mostly, um, third wave Scott at the beginning, but we soon, interestingly enough, as you know, we were playing third wave, third wave, and then we we got way more into the root ska, and another radio um, program um, emerged called Soundcheck, which did the more third wave ska, and Skanksters Paradise started to play more rootsy ska, um, more like you know traditional ska, like you know first wave. This was while you were in college, this happened? Yeah, this all happened in while I was in college with the Skanksters Paradise. Yeah. Now, was it a um, was it a thing where you guys would play music, or did you ever have guests come in? Um, we would have guests the odd time because we had um, we had a couple shows, but the thing was is that our Matt and I's friendship was was sort of short lived because he died shortly after we were friends, like probably within two years. Like he was one of my oh, very wow. best friends. And um <clears throat> yeah, we did a couple shows together. I think we did like three shows together. And um and then like he died in the summertime of who was it two, what was it, nineteen ninety it was in ninety ninety eight. Yeah, he died in 98. So, um, you know, I hadn't done the Scuffest yet, but we'd been doing shows because um, like the Scuffest was a buildup of a lot of shows that we did with bands like Easy Big Fella, The Slackers, you know, all these, all this coming up the line. Even Justin Hines and the Dominoes, um, I'd done that. So that was kind of showing the transition. Um, that was in the summer of 98 that I did that show. But Matt died, I believe, in August of 98. And uh, it was just, it was really brutal, man. Like, he was rock climbing with a friend. And, um, yeah, he, he reached for this one part of the, of the, of the mountain. And his friend wanted um, to, him to hold him, who tried to hold him up. And he knew he was a pretty big guy. And he knew if he did that, he'd take him down. And he jumped for this one part and he missed and he like, yeah, he, 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 he just, he died. And, um, he was like wow. only like, like 20 or something. That's terrible. Yeah. It was really rough. And, uh, so basically out of his death was the inspiration for the Victoria Scott festival. The other thing you, you mentioned that it was like a, uh, like a final school project, right. Mm -hmm. And that your, um, your grade depended on its success. <laughs> I heard that before. That's right. So wait, what, what were you majoring in that this was your final project? It was, uh, the, the degree was a Bachelor of Arts in Education, majoring in Leisure Service Administration. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And it's like what they used the degree for, it was um, more recreation-based, um, was most of the application that most people used it for. So it'd be like to be the administrator of a rec center or to be um, the administrator for a township for the recreation department. People used it for the marketing of 
um, to be the marketing manager for the Vancouver Canucks to work for Orca Bay, or they could use it to be one of the head um, planners of recreation at Whistler, um, the ski mountain, or they could use it for park for um, outdoor recreation, you know, um, and Parks Canada. But there is also the recognition that leisure is cult arts and culture. But at the time, there wasn't an arts and culture department. All the arts and culture went through recreation. So when I first started doing the Sky and Reggae Fest, I'd be dealing with parks and recreation. But then the city of Victoria created their own um, arts and culture department. So I've been dealing with them for many years. And I've, I, I know that I feel like I could work, I could easily work at that level um, and, and be one of those um, arts and culture, municipal or provincial or federal people, but I have too much fun um, being the artistic and executive director for the Ska Society. Nice. Yeah, much better to be on the Ska Society. Yeah, I think so. It's it's brought me all around the world. I've been invited, like the chamber of, of uh, the uh, the Colombian government has flown me out three times to be a musical representative for Canada. Um, at different conferences and festivals, I've been able to tour with bands in Mexico. I've got to know bands from all over the world. Yeah. Have you know? It's 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 you know, and I have we have a good working relationship now with all levels of government, and um, you know, can create you know have a a significant place in the artistic ecosystem for um, arts and music in Canada. Right back after this. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill hey everybody it's barry from the what podcast hey it's russ hey it's brian and we are giving away two tickets to bonnaroo 2024 these are ga plus and they include camping russ how do people get qualified we want to hear your top artists to play on the bonnaroo 2024 lineup Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So the, your professor that said that you had to um, succeed in order to pass, <clears throat> did he give you something to measure? Like what was, what did he consider success? <laughs> he said, he said, if the festival flops, then you, then you fail the work term. So you had to like make money basically, right? It had to do well to, yeah. <laughs> and I, and I said, well, Dr. Hendy, his name was Dr. Martin Hendy. And I said, well, that's a good measure to judge me on. Cause as a promoter, that's what, that's the measure I'll be judged on all the time is if I can't do well at the show, then I'm going to lose money. Then I can't, I can't, I can't make a living. So that's a good, you might as well mark me like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you're like, you're like pressure cooker. I got to only pay you a deli tray because otherwise I'm going to pay my class. <laughs> my grade depends on it. If they got the asking price, it would have it would have been half the festival budget. And it's kind of funny because the budget of the festival, the total, um, would have been half of what they asked. And that was with the festival selling out and selling as much beer as it could. So <laughs> I, was, yeah. I kind of laugh about it. Like, it's kind of funny today. It's like, you know... It could be, you know, one band could be the whole of what the whole budget was um, back in the day, which is kind of funny. Yeah. So like I was saying, I, I went to I went to Victoria. I got off with the ferry. We walked around the marina. We walked around the downtown area. Mm -hmm. So the, the first year, where was the shows at? Was it in that area or was it in a different part? Yeah, it was at Market Square. Oh, OK. Yeah, I don't think I went there. Yeah, which is on which is on Johnson Street. And um, it's in the north end of downtown, which is not really that much further than the south end because the downtown Victoria is quite small. 
But if you were to walk from the inner harbor, from say from the parliament buildings and walk um, down Wharf Street, and then you would eventually get to a street called Johnson Street. And then if you turn right, then the, you could get to the entrance of Market Square, which has all these beautiful shops and it's made of brick and cobblestone and wood. Yeah. And um, they used to do concerts there in the courtyard back in the day. Who played there back in the day? Yeah. Well, we had, I mean, at the festival, at the first festival, as I said, Pressure Cooker, The Scofflaws, King Django, and Chris Murray. And then The Bombass. And we had, um, what was the other band called? Monkey Spanker. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember the other two bands. I can't remember the other two that played in the afternoon off the top of my head. But those were those were two that I remember. Um, and then another year we had, um, what did we have there? We've had lots of different bands play there. The Itals have played there. Los Rastrios have played there. We had Kimani Marley play there. We've had the Soul Captives play there. Um, all throughout the years, um, we had different bands. Um, and sometimes Market Square would allow us to do music there. Now they don't like, but they've always been touch and go over the years with allowing music or festivals. Um, but we were able to use it off and on until about from the year 2000. And the last time, um, the last time we could do it was in, in the year 2011 was the last time we could use market square. Did it just get to be too many people? I think that, you know, I mean, it's always like, it is, it's a lot of people. It's, um, People like it's too bad because it's a beautiful concert venue. But if you have, you know, um, it, at the time it was Anthem Properties, which still may own it, and it's not, you know, if they're if they're not like in the in the passionate about, you know, fostering a live music scene, and it's their property, it doesn't, it's not mm. public, then you know we can't use it. There's not really much we can do about it, and. Um, you know, so it's too bad because it was a nice venue. However, um, nowadays, I would think that we probably would have outgrown the capacity that it has because it could fit about twelve to 1,300 in there and at the very most. And uh, now our audiences exceed that amount on a good day. What's, uh, what, what's the festival these days draw in terms of, um, yeah, ticket sales or whatever? Well, I would say, like, the the most it's drawn in ticket sales is close to fifteen hundred, but that's on one concert because it's set up in a manner where it's several concerts over five days at different mm. venues. Oh, okay. So like this year, for example, we've got Ship Point, um, and that is right on the it's like uh, in a parking lot right on the Inner Harbor, um, and so you may have remembered Milestones um, in the Tourist Info Center. So the parking lot that's low down there, that's where we do it. Oh, okay. And yeah, and so it's right on the water, right next to the the float planes. Yeah, I went by there, yeah. <laughs> You're right. That if we use the left parking lot, um, we can we can sell around 1,900 tickets. But if we use the middle parking lot, we can sell closer to 3,000 tickets. Um, but the most it's ever got is around just under fifteen hundred tickets, in terms of per per show. But remember, like we were doing five shows over five days, so just at that one venue. So we've got um, we do Wednesday, Thursday, and Sunday are free shows, and the Wednesday and Thursday one go from four to ten. And those are always full. So we'd probably have two to 3,000 people or two to 4,000 people pass through over the six-hour period on the free show. Um, we have a full packed harbor. When we have the ticketed show, it usually draws anywhere from 800 to 1,500, depending on the draw. But in addition to that, we have club shows. So um, we'll do a show on a Wednesday and then we'll go to the club and do a late show because 
the harbor has to be shut down at 10 o'clock. So, you know, one club might hold um, two, uh, three to 400 and another one, five to 600. So it's all multiple shows over five days. I see. This year we've got, the, so we got the inner harbor for five days and we've got the bigger venue. So it can hold closer to 3,000 people. However, um, we also have the Victoria Curling Club where we used to do our inside shows, even when we used Market Square back in the day, we'd have our free outdoor afternoon shows there. And then we would do a big ticketed one inside. And it's a curling rink and the capacity is 1,450 people. So it's like the Commodore times 50%. If you've ever known about the Commodore in Vancouver, it's like 50% bigger than the Commodore. So we're going to do two, two, um, plays following the ticketed shows at ship point this year on friday june 24th and saturday june 25th we'll have two curling club shows which will be all ages following our two ticketed ship point shows which go from um four to ten and two to ten because the one from two to ten is on a saturday so the the free show and the and the paid show are those the same bands or are those different bands all different bands, all different. Every every show is different. Every all different nice. bands. So, can we have you already announced um, who's playing? Like, can we hear who's playing the free show and who's playing the paid show? Oh yeah, of course. Of, yeah, of course. I remember them off by heart. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I booked them all. Um, Wednesday, we've got three houses down featuring General Fire from New Zealand, all twelve piece, all Maori re- uh, reggae band. They're flying in directly from New Zealand. We've got another one called Street Pharmacy um, from their Métis led from um, um, Ontario. And then Stephen Lewis and the Big Band of Fun from New Brunswick and um, Checo and and the Positive Rebellion from from Duncan right here on Vancouver Island. And then we're going to, we have another show after that on Wednesday, which is an international jam um, we're, we have curated a band that's going to work with other international bands that are there at the same time and another local band. And then the next day we've got Kobo Town, who's like a Calypso reggae band. They're like one of the main backing bands of Calypso Rose. We have an 18-piece ska jazz orchestra called the Capital Collective, which is the best players on Vancouver Island for ska and jazz music. Um, we've got uh, this band from Colombia called La Real del Sonido from Bogota and Rude City Riot on Stomp Records from Vancouver. It just goes on and on. The, the ticketed show, there's a show after that at the club with Def 3, um, Phrase and Fauna, Blase Blase. Um, the Friday ticketed show is The Whalers, Tanika Charles from Toronto, beautiful soul singer. Um, we've got an indigenous, um, f- uh, they call themselves Indigifunk, this band called Curtis Clear Sky and the Constellations. Um, it's just so, it's packed. If you look on the website, you see them all. there's like 35 bands from six different countries or seven different countries it's very diverse yeah is the audience pretty chill or do you have to ever like like what's the security situation it's a great audience well we like the city of victoria do not require the festival to have police present nice on the on on the permit because they recognize the good nature of the audience since it's, it's rated as low risk um in terms of with, with liquor and inspection so that's pretty good yeah it's you know all of the shows at ship point and the victoria curling club are all ages the music kind of just naturally attracts a very, um, very nice, well-behaved audience, but that like to have a good time and like yeah. to dance, you know? Yeah. We don't have to worry about marijuana because it's legal in Canada. Mm-hmm. And even before that, they didn't, we didn't have to really worry about it. The cops never really were, um, you know, came down on that, on the festival. Um, 
you know, people, <clears throat> people are kept in check with the fact that it's all ages. And I think that that, and it's an open license. So you're not all crammed into one area to drink. People can just put on a wristband and go anywhere they want. Nice. That sounds like a really nice, uh, comfortable situation. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good vibe. Very nice vibe. So Victoria is like, um, it's definitely a tourist destination in general, right? Mm-hmm. I did kind of, I was just kind of glancing at some of the paper stuff. It looked like a, there's a fair amount of music festivals that happen on the island. Mm-hmm. So where where do you feel like you you sit within that, the landscape of different sort of like music festivals and stuff that happen there? I think that we we feel a nice niche because... Where like the ska and reggae, I mean, there's no other festivals that is um, specializing in ska and reggae music. Mm-hmm. But we also, in addition to ska and reggae, there's a lot of extractions of hip hop, soul, funk, calypso, like pretty much anything that grooves. Um, in some years we'll have punk. This year we don't, but um, it's got it's just like music that people like to dance to. That's fun. Um, usually there's something for everybody. And I find that there's the jazz festival happens at the same time, but they have a much older audience and their tickets are more expensive. And a lot of their headlining shows are in theaters. Um, Like they'll have like Buddy Guy, but it's in a theater for like 115 bucks, Mm. right? Yeah. So it's like, I feel our festival is really good for people that are like in their twenties to forties or young minded people who are in their fifties to seventies. Yeah. And it's like a, you know, kid friendly, you know, very kid friendly, you know, and uh, you know, very family oriented, but not family in those, in the sense where you see these like designed kid festivals where, they have a mascot yeah. balloon and <laughs> like a mascot that might scare children and, you know, kind of like kind of lame and not fun. Like you don't have to have it like so tame and so bland just because to make it kid friendly. Yeah. As, as a parent, I really appreciate that because like you really don't need to have all that for kids to have a good time. No. No, you want to expose them to good music. Absolutely. And you know what I mean? And and like the people that are coming to the festival, like they're they're really nice, but they like to have a good time and they like to dance. So it's like some people might think that that's not kid friendly because they want them to be at more at a at a <clears throat> an event that's very, very tame and may not have any um liquor service and maybe kind of more um yeah just like you know tame tame but our festival i feel it's like very relaxed very good vibe you know it has a visual arts component as well called rocksteady arts collective where yeah we have artists artists are um expressing visually the music of the festival and there's a kids area where they can color do chalk art coloring sheets, play games. Um, So a lot of parents like that. And it's a really good one for parents, like young parents. When I say young parents, like under 50, you know, and it's a good place if you want the whole family to come. Like I've seen kids go with their parents and they were eight and now they're 20 and they still like coming with their friends. Oh, that's awesome. You know, and they experience the festival in a different way. But, uh, you know, they still like it. They don't grow out of it. I was looking at some of the art. The art's really good, by the way. It's like, um, it's the kind of art that you would go see separate from a a festival. Like, it's good art. And um, Mm -hmm. like, uh, I think there was one, it was a, so Danny Rebel, he's a, he's a Canadian uh, reggae artist. That's right. Didn't he do like a portrait of you for one of the festivals? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yeah. That's awesome. It's in our, it's in our studio. And um, yeah, there's a couple. Um, there's another one. Um, Sean Flinch Benson, who's on our creative team, made a pretty nice cartoon drawing of me as well. It's pretty nice when you get you get <laughs> a couple paintings of yourself. Sure, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's pretty nice. If I understand correctly, uh, the first year that you did the festival, um, your mother and other members of your family helped with the food portion of it? Oh, yeah, yeah. My mom cooked food for the festival for like 11 years um, until 2000 or 12 years until 2011. And it was like the best Caribbean food, um, salt fish and curry chicken and like, you know, rice and peas and chop up and, you know, all that kind of stuff. She, my, my, my background is from Antigua and Barbuda in the Eastern Caribbean. So, um, it's kind of, that's, you know, what really inspired, I think the festival is like the love of Caribbean music, but it also is the influence of music that I grew up being a West coast, um, Canadian uh, Island boy. So I'm like pretty much, I'm a, I'm a fusion of the West coast, Canada Island with the Caribbean (laughs) Island. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Two island homes. I mean, that's awesome because like, I mean, it's more, it's more popular now. Like I think about festivals in two th- in the early 2000s and it was like cheap food. Oh, it yeah. wasn't like anything remarkable. Right. Festivals have caught on. I think especially with the rise of food trucks, they're like, oh, we can just get food trucks and that's good food. Like, but, <laughs> but when you were doing the festival, like it must've been so amazing for people uh, or especially these musicians coming from out of town being like, oh, there's like. Uh, real, actually good food here. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, they, it was a real gift that that my mom did that. And, you know, I know that like Fishbone, for example, they love my mom's food. And John, Mc, um, John McKnight said, he's like, Dane, did you grow up with this food? Like eating this food, and I said, "Yeah." He says, "You are one lucky son." <laughs> you know, he was he was just like he was just so happy. Neville Staple really enjoyed the food as well, and Mum would always be backstage and you know with me, like as I was went growing up, coming up the line, especially when I was younger, because I was like I started I started the festival in my very early twenties. So, you know, it's like it, it's a type of thing where my mom young enough that she could really kind of see what was going on, you know, and she saw how much energy I was putting into the event and, you know, um, she really wanted to do her best to try and um, make sure that, you know, she could give me every opportunity that it would do well. And that was a really nice contribution that she gave and that a lot of bands remember. I I had actually heard that um, Fishbone, uh, had heard about the cooking before they played and specifically wanted to play because of what they'd heard about the food. <laughs> well, I know in Mad Bomber Society said they'd give me a discount on the performance fee if, if my mom cooked the food as well. <laughs> so, so definitely it was, it became, yeah, the slackers, they used to eat the food and all the bands we had up to actually 2011 had, you know, had the food, but it was tough. It was tough after that. Cause you know, as your, your parents age, it's hard to stay on your feet and to be able to make a, a meal for, you know, 200 people. And she would have my aunt Eileen who's Jamaican um, helper. And then another um, Heather um, from her work and she used to work for the government and Heather used to come. She used to always fly down to Barbados every year. Um, she was from here. She was white, but she always, she was very familiar. Um, she is white, but she's very familiar with the Caribbean cooking and very much a part of the culture. So the three of them would, would, um, you know, make the, make the meals together. And it was an opportunity to, you know, to come together and, she would get my aunt Naomi to send the salt fish from Toronto because it was always cheaper that way. FedEx salt fish, yeah. you know, and it was, it was, it was great. And now today, like that tradition um, was carried over because I make some really good Caribbean food. Um, I know because people tell me and, <laughs> uh, but the thing is, is I can only do it when it's for shows like, you know, I made some Jamaican patties for the Soul Rebels, who the brass band from New Orleans that came and did another mini festival that we have called Garden City Grooves. 
and um, they came on February, this past February 28th, and I made them Jamaican patties. And other times when we did live streams during the pandemic, I made curry chicken and rice and peas. And um, I know how to make salt fish, but on ska and reggae fest, the spirit of the quality of food is upheld, but um, it's not always my mom doing it because, and I can't always do it because um, I'm busy with, you know, tending to, you know, seven bands a day, (laughs) you know, coming from around the world. But, you know, I think that the quality of the food um, we still offer to our VIP patrons. We have a guy named Eric Holden, which is we count from the rock steady arts, but the culinary rock steady arts. And he makes food look like artwork and makes um, fancy dishes that are reflecting upon what the countries of origin of where the bands are from. Oh, that's rad. That's really cool. Yeah. And so the people in the VIP, they get stage side viewing and then they get to eat these beautiful snacks um, that are that that accompany um, the service. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. We did the first year as a project. Mm-hmm. Um, it was successful. Did you know immediately that you were going to continue or did, what was the process to thinking like, okay, let's try it again. Well, I mean, after the first year it was so successful, um, I said, Oh, like I thought automatically I wanted to try it again, but you know, it was way harder the second year because we didn't have pressure cooker and because third wave Scott completely tanked, Like in the early, like, you know, it had been becoming way less popular in the States when it hit Victoria and Vancouver. Like it it was way less popular in the States already. And people were like, you know, the next one was emo. Like a lot of people that were into ska, like started to listen to emo. So I, I remember the attendance dropped significantly in subsequent years after that but we loved the music so much we didn't care we just said we love this music we love this people and i remember i used to i used to have to work full time so i made sure i had enough money to pay the deposit (laughs) for the bands that we were bringing because you know it wasn't popular as it was the first year and um but we still stuck with it and then despite the dip in popularity of ska it kind of created its own momentum and its own name for itself just because we we knew that the music was good and it wasn't just you know a fad or a trend to us you know it was something that was long lasting and there's a reason why people love ska so much and it's because it's solid good music you know and it was like the music that bob marley made before he you know that led to rock steady and reggae yeah and so many offshoots and that's why it 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 it, it lasts and it belongs with those long-standing other genres that we all know so well such as jazz and reggae i love that um it feels like wherever you go that ska the people that are involved with it create a tight-knit community mm-hmm. That's true. You know, it's true where Adam and I live in, in like the Bay Area, California. It's true with you in Victoria and with this festival. It's like it's a tight knit community. It's people who love it. And then they, they they pull together to make it happen. Yeah. And hearing that you were paying the deposits in the lean years out of your out of your own pocket. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did because I worked um, I work at rec. I did recreation. So I would you know, do like youth programs and do all that kind of stuff. And like, I would, that would be my regular full-time job. And then I would like, I worked, um, yeah, I worked for like, did like a little government job for a summer one time. And, 
I would just like find a way to be able to like, you know, to make it happen. And I, I had my own company. It was um, called Enigmatica Entertainment, um, like enigmatic with an A at the end. And uh, yeah, and that produced the festival for the first four years in partnership with CFUV 101.9 FM, which was a nonprofit organization. And that they were important in the evolution because if, unless you're a nonprofit, you couldn't really get a liquor license and you weren't eligible for grant funding. So we would be able to get some, like a few small grants through the station and, um, you know, some help with volunteers and, um, you know, and then eventually we created our own nonprofit in the, in November of 2003. We created our, no, our own nonprofit organization, and that allowed us to do um, Victoria's fifth anniversary festival um, in the summer of 2004. Mm. So you, you talked a little bit before about how um, you allowed it to be more, uh, you know, a little, a little bit more broad in terms of like it's Caribbean and Caribbean influenced, and that you know, and that uh, actually, you know, if, I don't know if. I don't know if some people realize if you um if you think about what's Caribbean influenced that's really a lot of music a lot yes I mean you're you're talking about hip hop you're talking about electronic music yes I mean you you could you can go down down the list of <laughs> what that actually entails but um yeah, drum and bass yeah, yeah. um reggaeton obviously um mm-hmm. so um some I was just some of the acts that struck that I was looking at that that have played over the years that seemed interesting kind of on the, the, the outer skirts of that is a uh, most deaf. You had most deaf one year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ozo Motley had played mm-hmm. uh, Larry and his flask. That's right. And a uh, uh, real McKenzie's. who was a, 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 another Canadian band. Yeah. They play often. You know, we have them for venue plays as well. I saw, I saw real McKenzie's in the mid nineties while my band was on tour and uh, we were playing in um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we finished our gig, and then we saw that there was a gig happening at the club next to us. And we're like, what's going on over here? And there's uh, five people in the audience. And uh, we look, and there's this crazy, so super drunk <laughs> band, all in kilts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Losing their mind. And we're like, what is this? And, yeah. and they just play for hours. And... Um, they're just lifting their kilts um, <laughs> like every every 10 minutes to to reveal the, uh, that they had no underwear and we were just like oh my god this is the best band nice this was i think before because they got kind of big uh a few years later but this was like when they were just an unknown band yeah oh yeah well they well, they were actually i remember paul like back in when he was on one of the shows with um the neville staple and that was that was a um, a, quite a quite a dramatic festival because um, Neville Staples' visa, um, U.S. visa was denied at the very last minute, and oh. we had to fly him and the band all the. It was it was canceled. The visa was canceled without prejudice, so um, we had to we had to take a chance and fly them from England. It was like two grand a flight because we were getting it last minute and. <clears throat> the band just says we'll play for expenses and um yeah and 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 they managed to get in they did they they let them in but um i remember he was on that festival and we were interviewing him and i remember him saying distinctly it's all in working order <laughs> yeah, and i know that well, you know what he was referring to and paul still is so lively today um they just did a play on march this past march 5th um uh, at the Victoria Event Center, we had them play, and um, actually, they were the last show that we did before the pandemic, which was on March um, of the sixth of two thousand and twenty. How was uh, Most Deaf? Uh, how, how, what did he think of the festival? Um, I think he, I think he liked the festival, but uh, Most Deaf wasn't easy to work with, to be honest. Um, you know, uh, expensive, and at the time. He was, um, I guess he had just done a video to protest the detainees at Guantanamo Bay. And that was done like, you know, within a couple of weeks of the festival. 
And I remember Khalil, the managers, did not um, allow us to, you know, to him to be quoted about it or talk about it. And he had just, um, that was around the time he had just changed his name to Yasin Bey. So it was a transition from most deaf to um, Yasin Bey. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, we were kind of, Put in a, put in a corner. The reason that we did that was because we had some very stiff competition. We were going to book Rancid, and they were in Vancouver the same weekend. But at the last minute, when I say last minute, I mean at the, in mid March of that year, um, Stormy told me that they decided that they were going to do two shows at the Commodore on the same weekend as the festival. Oof. And so, and not play the Skafest and do this on the Sunday play at the Commodore. And that was pretty gut wrenching. And then, um, and then we, the rock, there was another festival called Rock the Shores. It didn't last for very long, probably like four years, five years, but um, they had Weezer on the same weekend. And and we, yeah, and we had in, in Victoria, so we had like, Rancid playing two shows at the Commodore same weekend. We've got Weezer in Victoria. We had a great lineup. I mean, it had it had we had Sierra Leone Refugee All Stars, Dub Effects, Planet Smashers, Catch a Fire, um, Debonairs, Tanya Stevens, Blitzy Ambassador, all these great bands, right? Yeah. But uh, it was just the fact that it was just up against those popular bands. So we brought in most stuff like a month before. And a lot of people were trying to trade their Weezer tickets for most deaf tickets. And the most strangest thing ever happening in my life, we were at the Vogue on, on the Sunday of the festival. I believe it was July the 14th of 2013. And we're playing most deaf at the Vogue. And Rancid's playing two blocks away <laughs> at the Commodore. And I'm like with Live Nation and the Scott side is doing most stuff. It was the most bizarre <laughs> thing I've ever experienced. That is such a weird turn of events. Yeah, it was weird. And then from that point in, 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 in truth, I believe that was significant in terms of the fusion and the way that the festival went after that, it kind of went a little bit more reggae, hip hop fusion and less two tone punk. It really did make an impact. And because most stuff was such a big name as well, it really got a lot of people that were into conscious hip hop to be into the festival. And we converted a lot of them to like ska and reggae music, but Um, I felt that was a significant turning point in the evolution of our festival. I think you said that um, that same year, was that the same year you had Sierra Leone's Refugee All-Stars? Yeah, that's right. So this band, um, they formed in uh, West African refugee camps. Mm -hmm. Um, Really interesting, really good stuff. Like it's kind of like acoustic, but reggae influenced. Uh, Can you talk talk a little bit about... um, that band and, and bringing in the process of bringing them in and everything. Well, yeah, it was, um, I, it, it's a, it was often agency that, um, is into more, um, global roots. And actually I, I worked with the, I was reconnected with that agent just recently because he works with the soul rebels now. So I was great. Um, yeah, we really liked that they were there at the time. That was the whole conflict down there. In Sierra Leone, it was it was more um, fresh, so it was very significant to have, you know, a, a band of of that came from that hardship, that created was creating this beautiful music that played reggae and ska as well, and um, they were on a free concert actually, wow, wow. so the harbor was packed. Yeah, it was a free show, and it was on. It was on a Wednesday. Um, yeah, a Wednesday. And it was just it was just packed and it was one of the best free shows we've ever had. I wanna so I wanna talk about a few bands that I, I believe are local that are I, I know they've played the festival and that are just part of your scene. There's a band called One Drop. I think they were more from a mid two thousands. 
yeah, One Drop was, oh, they're a great band. And actually, a lot of the people in that band are still very much a part of the society. A lot of their audience um, <clears throat> are, you know, they're right there. They still are available for reunion shows every now and then. They created another band called the Hillside Hooligans, which have most of the members from, well, at least half of them from One Drop, because they had some rotating members. But all of them are around um, around the area of BC, doing their own thing, raising families, or you know, just doing what they do. And <clears throat> they were one of the bands that I felt could have quote unquote made it. And um, I do remember just before the band um, ended, they had an opportunity to do a tour with the Mighty Mighty Boston's. The first time we had the Boston's, which was in, in, in 2009. And um, Aaron Pincus, um, who is like um, an agent now with, I can't remember, um, creative artist agency or paradigm maybe paradigm he said we had we had quite the negotiation to confirm the boss tones and finally um he said okay you can have them he says yeah who do you want to have open for them and i and i did want to have one drop but they had just tapped themselves out and <laughs> had gone on a quite a tough california tour and they just were on their last legs, but I felt if they had a little bit more, a little bit more together and they went on that, um, that tour, man, they would have really killed it because I know that Dickie Barrett really liked them. And um, he even said so when we, the first time we, we were, we picked them up at the airport and we had a, a like an, a seat, a mixed CD. And he said, out of all the bands, I remember, um, the driver said that he liked the one drop the most. So they're kind of more, they kind of more lean, more reggae, but they have like punk and sky elements too. No, I would say they lean, they're kind of like 50, 50 punk. Like, well, no, they have ska, but they're like, let's see, I'd say four, 35% punk or 35, 40% punk and then reggae and then the balanced ska. So maybe, maybe, 35 40 30 20 something like that or, yeah. no, that doesn't add up <laughs> 40, 40 45 45 25 30 or 45 30 20 25 yeah something like that like they have ska in them but it's like probably 20 percent, and then punk is like close to half but and reggae is like a big influence they like old school reggae they do like yellow man cover and you know, they, they really, um, they love reggae a lot, but more the classic stuff, but, um, and the roots reggae and they like Morgan heritage. And I was always, I, I discovered through their scene that if I couldn't book reggae, I could still get punks to come out listening to classic reggae. <laughs> and I always, I, I was like, I always felt that was an interesting phenomenon that you can get a punk person to go to classic reggae, but not as much the contemporary style. But if it had that classic reggae root style, a lot of them would would still go to it. Sure. Mm -hmm. Now there's another. Um, there's Grossbuster is another one. Yeah, Nathan Cummings. Yeah. Grossbuster is a producer. Yeah, he's um he's like a uh, like a producer DJ. I'm gonna say DJ like he gets up there and yeah, he's like a DJ. He used to be the lead singer of one of the lead singers of One Drop. Him, oh. Nathan Cummings, and Brandon Leahy, and they were both like the singers. I mean, it had many singers like David Snow who used to play. Um, I think it was David Snow on bass or guitar. I'm trying to remember. Mm, think bass. I'll probably get in trouble, but um, <laughs> yeah. But he he had an amazing. He had a set of pipes. David Snow and then Brandon Leahy, who still um, is with Hillside Hooligans. He has a set of pipes, and he plays the saxophone. And then Nate was he, Nate is like a, a piano master but um, can play other instruments, but piano is his main thing. But from that talent, he can create all sorts of samples and he's into dub music and he's into, um, yeah, just creating music more electronically, but still keeping the tradition of reggae and hip hop. 
in that vein. Some of his beats are really interesting because yeah, it does feel like he found this middle ground between hip hop and reggae. That's right, and it's uh, it's pretty cool stuff. I have a note here. I don't remember why I wrote it, but <laughs> I have a note here that says Cherry Pop and Daddies, and then it says something about shock. What, <laughs> what am I? Yeah. What, why did I write this? <laughs> well, it was um, at the curling club. Uh, it was so funny one time. This is, I mean, we understand we did the curling club for um, probably like 11 years before this happened. But um, yeah, the guy, there was something with one of the breakers, something, and he, he got shocked and um, he came off stage. They were, um, they told me they were happy. I was lucky that he was fine. And <laughs> he went back on stage and played the show and they did, they didn't play for a while, but they did play in, um, in the 2019, which was the last time that we were able to have the festival, um, in person. So I think that they got over it. It took a little while, but <laughs> they, 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 they really loved the festival. So I was happy that they came back again. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash in defense of Scott. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the in defense of Scott discord. In defense of Scott would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying... Ska now more than ever. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.